Do you suffer with chronic pain? Are you taking risky, over-the-counter, or prescription anti-inflammatory drugs? This is Dr. Ronald Hoppe with a better natural solution from Future Farm Botanicals, Liquid Turmeric Liposome Complex. Future Farm's liquid turmeric with liposomes and nanotechnology delivers maximum absorption for effective pain relief. Sourced and manufactured in the United States, this product contains 1,600 milligrams of curcumin and powerful antioxidant properties. This plant-based curcumin is used to possibly reduce inflammation, block proteins that trigger swelling, and intercept inflammatory pathways, significantly decreasing inflammatory responses. For more information and to order, call 888-841-7216, 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's future P-H-A-R-M, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Don't live with pain when there's an all-natural, science-based remedy that works. myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to Layla Weighs In. I'm your host, Layla Mutin. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist here in New York City in Midtown. And I have a private practice. I work with Dr. Hoffman. I'm available in person via telephone and via telehealth, like, you know, video, virtually, virtually, like Zoom, if that suits you. If you'd like to make an appointment, 212-779-1744. That's 212-779-1744. Speak to Liz. She will set you up. I want to talk to you today. Oh, by the way, before I get to that, my email is radioprogram at AOL.com. For those of you who would like to submit questions or topics of interest for me to talk about, that's radioprogram at AOL.com. I want to talk to you about the importance of the vagus nerve in our hunger, our satiety, our blood sugar. This is a study that came out of Cologne, Germany, the Max Planck Institute for Metabolism Research. This is very, very interesting. It's gut to brain. Nerve cells detect what we eat. Nerve cells of the vagus nerve fulfill opposing tasks. The vagus nerve, you know, goes from the brain down through the GI tract. It's important for gut-brain communication. And what happens is the gut and the brain communicate with each other. In order to adapt satiety, you know, the feeling of fullness, the feeling of satisfied with the amount of food you ate and blood sugar levels during mealtime, during food consumption. The vagus nerve is an important communicator between these two organs. And researchers from Cologne, Germany, found that they took a closer look at the functions of different nerve cells in the control center of the vagus nerve. And they discovered something very surprising. Although the nerve cells are located in the same control center, they innervate different regions of the gut and also differentially control satiety and blood sugar levels. 
So, of course, this discovery can play an important role in the development of future therapeutic strategies against obesity and diabetes, and not just drug strategies here. When we consume food, information about the ingested food is transmitted from the GI tract to to the brain in order to adapt feelings of hunger and satiety. Now, based on this information, the brain decides, for example, whether we continue or stop eating. Pretty simple, right? Like the stretch receptors in your stomach. When you feel full, sends the message to the brain, although that could take several minutes, as much as 20 minutes for your brain to get that message. So in addition, our blood sugar level is adapted by the brain. The vagus nerve, which extends from the brain all the way down to the GI tract, plays an essential role in this communication. And in the control center of the vagus nerve, the so-called nodose ganglion, N-O-D-O-S-E ganglion, various nerve cells are situated, some of which innervate the stomach, while others innervate the intestines. And some of these nerve cells detect mechanical stimuli in different organs, like the stomach stretch during feeding. That's how we know we're getting full. While others detect chemical signals, like nutrients from the food that we eat. But what roles these different nerve cells play in transmitting information from the gut to the brain and how their activity contributes to adaptations of feeding behavior and blood sugar levels had remained largely unclear, with the exception of that basic slow down when you eat so that you will realize when you were full. If you're the first one to finish your meal at the table, right, um, there isn't enough time for your stomach to send the fullness signal to the brain, right, via vagal, vagal nerve, to let you know to stop eating. So by the time you stop eating, you've gotten seconds, maybe even third helpings, and now you're super stuffed. Now you may be uncomfortable. That's why it's a good idea to pause between bites, put down your utensils between bites, take a good at least 15 minutes to chew your food, not, not 15 minutes per chew, you know what I'm saying, to eat your meal. Take a fair amount of time to eat your meal. Don't be rushed. And that way, your stomach is going to, via the vagus nerve, let your brain know, hey, I'm full. Stomach is stretched. No more room here. Stop eating. So to go on with this particular study, to investigate the function of the nerve cells in the no-dose ganglion, we developed a genetic approach that enables us to visualize the different nerve cells and and manipulate their activity in mice. The researchers say this allowed us to analyze which nerve cells innervate which organ, pointing to what kind of signals they detect in the gut. It also allowed us to specifically switch on and off the different types of nerve cells to analyze their precise function. So different food activates different nerve cells. In their studies, the researchers focused primarily 
on two types of nerve cells in the nodose ganglion, which is just one millimeter in size. Quote, one of these cell types detects stomach stretch, and the activation of these nerve cells causes mice to eat significantly less. We identified that activity of these nerve cells is key for transmitting appetite-inhibiting signals to the brain and also decreasing blood sugar levels. The second group of nerve cells primarily innervates the intestines. This group of nerve cells senses chemical signals from our food. However, their activity is not necessary for feeding regulation. Instead, activation of these cells increases our blood sugar level. Thus, these two types of nerve cells in the control center of the vagus nerve fulfill very different functions. Quote, the reaction of our brain during food consumption is probably an interplay of these two nerve cell types. Food with a lot of volume stretches our stomach and activates the nerve cell types innervating this organ. At a certain point, their activation promotes satiety and hence halts further food intake. And at that time, coordinates the adaptations of blood sugar levels. Food with a high nutrient density tends to activate the nerve cells in the intestines. Their activation increases blood glucose levels by coordinating the release of the body's own glucose, but they do not halt further intake. The discovery of the different functions of these two types of nerve cells could play a crucial role in developing therapeutic strategies. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you some therapeutic strategies right now besides the one that I gave you about slowing down. There's a reason I'm always counseling patients who eat very, very fast to slow down. I'm talking about people who are the first one to finish dinner at the table. Everybody else is lingering, enjoying their food. The meal is going on for a half hour, one hour. This person ate their food in 10, 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. You know, it's, it's actually a good reason. It's an argument for having courses during meals. The courses could actually inhibit you from eating the whole meal. If you're going to bring out, you know, the salad course first, eat your salad, then the plate is taken away, you know, like in a restaurant. And then another course may come, and then the main meal may come, and then the dessert. It's a reason to slow down. It's an argument for using courses during mealtime. Hey, that might be a good strategy. So when you're serving dinner at the table, maybe you want to bring out your salad course first or your soup course first and linger around that, eat that meal, and then leisurely take your soup bowls away or your salad plates away and start bringing out the main meal. Before you know it, 45 minutes has gone by. What a wonderful way to eat. Remember the slow food movement? Yeah, we're still trying to do that. Now, I'm not talking about if you're extremely busy at work and you're stressed, you've got a half hour for lunch, fine. Try to use that half hour. Try not to bolt back to your desk or your office within 15 minutes. 
But at least, even if you're unable to do this during the work week, at least on the weekend, make the time. On your days off, make the time. Or at least at the dinner meal, make the time to do that. So that's one strategy. Slow down so that the message that travels through the vagus nerve from your stomach to your brain lets your brain know, hey, I'm full. I don't have to eat anymore. Because when we eat too fast, that message comes too late. We've already overindulged. And that doesn't help. If you're trying to regulate your eating habits, if you're trying to lose some weight, if you're trying to maintain your weight and you don't want to overeat, right? You're going to eat fewer calories if you eat more slowly. And doesn't it make sense? If you're a foodie, you're a food lover, don't you want to linger and taste and enjoy the aromas, all of that, the texture in your mouth. Don't you want this to take, don't you want to slow down and take time and make the meal last longer? Don't you want that pleasure to last longer? When you, when I'm at the beach, I want to stay as long as I can, right? Don't you want the pleasure to last longer? When you're reading your favorite book, don't you want to be able to read it longer? then you're allotted time before you have to, oh, go run errands or pick up the kids or whatever it is that you're doing in your very busy life, right? And a way to keep your vagus nerve healthy, there are gadgets and things. You could read more about that at drhoffman.com, drhoffman.com. But a, 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 an easy way to get started on toning your vagus nerve, hum. Do you like to hum? Hmm... Hum. Now, there's a proper way to hum. Your lips should be closed, but your teeth should be apart. Not wide apart, just apart. Not your teeth should not be together. Not hmm, where you feel your teeth vibrate. You don't want that. Your lips are closed, your teeth are apart, and you hum. That is the proper way to hum. Hum your favorite tune and tune up your vagus nerve. Tone your vagus nerve. Slow down during your meals. This is a great way to do it, to keep your calories in check, to keep the amount of food that you consume in check. I want to move on to something talked a little bit about Alzheimer's last week, but this is also very interesting. Gum bacteria imbalance linked to Alzheimer's disease biomarker. So gum bacteria imbalance is linked to an Alzheimer's disease biomarker. This is from Integrative Practitioner. Older adults with more harmful than healthy bacteria in their gums are more likely to have evidence for amyloid beta. You know about the amyloid plaques, right? A key biomarker for Alzheimer's disease in their cerebrospinal fluid. And this is according to new research by New York University, published in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia, Diagnosis, Assessment, and Disease Monitoring. Again, this is research by New York University, published in the journal called Alzheimer's and Dementia, Diagnosis, Assessment, and Disease Monitoring, if you want to go look for that yourself. However, this imbalance in oral bacteria, 
was not associated with another Alzheimer's biomarker, tau, T-A-U, tau protein. That's another biomarker, a hallmark of Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's disease is characterized by two hallmark proteins in the brain, in the brain amyloid beta, which clumps together to form plaques and is believed to be the first protein deposited in the brain as Alzheimer's develops, and tau, which builds up in the nerve cells and forms tangles, according to the researchers. For the study, the researchers studied 48 healthy, cognitively normal adults ages 65 and older. These folks did not have any dementia. They were cognitively normal adults. Participants underwent oral examinations to collect bacterial samples from under the gum line and a lumbar puncture, a spinal tap, was used to obtain the CFS fluid, this, this cerebrospinal fluid, to determine the levels of amyloid beta and tau. To estimate the brain's expression of Alzheimer's proteins, the researchers looked for lower levels of amyloid beta, which translate to higher brain amyloid levels and higher levels of tau, which reflect higher brain tangle accumulations in the CFS. So, in the CSF. Analyzing the bacterial DNA of the samples taken from beneath the gum line, the researchers quantified bacteria known to be harmful to oral health. I'll give you some examples of some of these names. Prevotella, these are harmful. Prevotella, Porphyromonas, Freetai bacterium. These are, help, these are harmful. And pro-oral health bacteria, the healthy ones, like Cornea bacterium, Actomyces, and Capnocytophaga. The results showed that individuals with an imbalance in bacteria with the ratio favoring harmful to healthy bacteria were more likely to have the Alzheimer's disease signature of reduced CSF amyloid levels. The researchers hypothesized that because high levels of the healthy bacteria help maintain bacterial balance and decrease inflammation, they may be protective against Alzheimer's disease. See, this is why, you know, I'm always asking about dental health with all of my patients and especially new patients. I want to know if they have a history of gum disease, periodontal disease. This is important. And if they're taking care of their teeth, because all that bacteria translates to the rest of the body in terms of this, in terms of inflammation, and so on. The study adds to the growing evidence of a connection between, what I was just saying, periodontal disease or gum disease and Alzheimer's disease. Periodontal disease, which affects 70% of adults 65 and older, according to estimates from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, is characterized by chronic and systemic inflammation with pockets between the teeth and gums enlarging and harboring bacteria. Hey, that's a lot. 70% of adults 65 and older have periodontal disease? That's a lot. Hey, more trips to the dentist and periodontist, please. The researchers did not find 
an association between gum bacteria and tau levels in this study. So it remains unknown whether tau lesions will develop later or if the subjects will develop the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. The researchers plan to conduct a longitudinal, a longitudinal study and a clinical trial to test if improving gum health through deep cleanings to remove deposits of plaque and tartar from under the gum line can modify brain amyloid and prevent Alzheimer's disease. Quote, our results show the importance of the overall oral microbiome. Not only the role of bad bacteria, but also good bacteria in modulating amyloid levels. These findings suggest that multiple oral bacteria are involved in the expression of amyloid lesions. Now, having said that, these amyloid plaques, they are part of the metabolism of the brain. They are supposed to be there per se, but they are also supposed to clear the brain in the proper manner. The hallmark of Alzheimer's is the buildup of these plaques. These plaques have not been able to clear the brain. The amyloid plaques are part of the metabolism of the, of the brain, and they are supposed to clear the brain in the right manner. And in Alzheimer's, they are not. And it, there is then, you know, the endless question, why? Why aren't these plaques being cleared? Blood sugar has a lot to do with it. Insulin resistance of the brain has everything to do with it. That's why we call Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes, right? So even if you have uh, that characteristic APOE4, it's only 10, 10 to 15% of the population that will go on to Alzheimer's. There's a proper way to eat when you have the APOE4. Dr. David Perlmutter, neurologist in Naples, Florida, talks about it in his book, Grain Brain. It's a low-carb diet. It is the antidote to diabetes in the body. Therefore, it is the antidote to diabetes in the brain. It may be the antidote to Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Dale Bredesen has also done a lot of research in this area as well and talks about the importance of blood sugar, right? All important information. So reminder to send me your questions and topics of interest to radioprogram at AOL.com. That's radioprogram at AOL.com. I want to thank you for joining me on another edition of Layla Ways In here on Intelligent Medicine. This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Propax Gold with NT Factor, a complete vitamin and mineral formula. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to reduce fatigue, whatever the cause, age, illness, or just being run down. NT Factor repairs damaged cells and restores healthy bacteria in your digestive tract. Clinical trials have shown NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half, and it even reverses some symptoms of aging. I've been taking NT Factor for years. With a 45-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To order, call 800-982-9158, 800-982-9158, or go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. This is Layla Mutin, RD. I see patients regularly along with Dr. Hoffman. If you require a nutrition consult with me but live out of town, there's no need to travel to New York City. I have telephone consultations with clients from all over the country. 
Please visit drhoffman.com for more information. And to set up an appointment, call 212-779-1744. That's 212-779-1744. I look forward to being a collaborator in your health care.